Chapter 11 The First Lawyer The law is an ass, an idiot. Mr. Bumble, Oliver Twist, Charles Dickens. As much as I distrust the justice system, there's nowhere else to turn. The Winnipeg lawyer I call has an excellent reputation for being fair, aggressive, and successful. Our first conversation is promising. Send me what you wrote, he directs over the phone with the blunt, imperious style of someone who's rarely questioned, except possibly by his wife and kids. Minutes later, with get the truth in his hands, he calls back. Is that it? Yes, I quip, that's all she wrote. Well, if this is anti-Semitic, I'm, I'm a pomegranate. And I'm Jewish. The relief is sweet, but short-lived. When I visit him in his impressive Winnipeg offices, he has lost his sense of humor. The detailed dossier I had prepared is on his desk with more than 30 pages, printouts of every vicious, slanderous statement I could find, names, dates, sources, everything. He lifts one report which scolds me as a frequent accomplice to the notorious Barry's wicker. Before we start, is this true? Do you know this guy? Barry's wicker is a mild-mannered and articulate Toronto journalist of more than 50-plus years. He studied and worked with media icon Marshall McLuhan, taught media at Ryerson University, and served as Vision TV's media critic from its very beginnings in 1988. According to some, Zwicker is Canada's Jim Garrison, the Southern prosecutor who was driven by one awkward issue, who killed JFK. For Zwicker, it's who engineered 9-11, an inconvenient truther, as many have called him. I explain that most established Canadian journalists know and respect Barry's Wicker. I interview them at length on the fifth anniversary of 9-11. The public interview is somewhere on the Internet, skeptical, respectful, and balanced. My barrister of choice deftly changes directions, reminding me of his reputed courtroom skills. It doesn't matter that your story was silly and wrong, he begins. What matters is that it's not anti-Semitic. Ouch. As a journalist, that's like hearing that your children are demented and should be institutionalized. I counter that while there may have been one factual error in Get the Truth, the column is neither frivolous nor irresponsible. A pause. Another swift change of direction. I have no doubt whatever that you've been defamed and that you've been slandered. I will even say that you've been screwed. And it's quite possible you could sue and win and win big. Hell, he continues, I could present my defense to a jury this afternoon. This reassuring assessment is followed by the many reasons I should not pursue the matter in the courts. I listen, dumbstruck. Legal action would take not weeks or months, but years. I know this. 
I survived the divorce for God's sake. I know how slowly legal wheels turn and the obscene price tags attached. He continues that the bill to fight a defamation suit would be well over $100,000, and he'd need an immediate retainer of ten to 15000 A man of his stature does not work on contingency. I picture a for sale sign on my front lawn. My mind searches for details of my mortgage. How much equity do I have again? And, as he watches me shrink in my chair, they'll beat the living crap out of you. They were the Toronto lawyers who would be hired by my list of 25 potential defendants. The best, most expensive lawyers available since my list included some of the most powerful people in the country. Corporate media owners, parliamentarians, publishers, even the Prime Minister. People who had left me for dead in the 2008 federal election. It sounds ominously like a matter of money. The deepest pockets prevail. I feel foolish. But, uh, what about the truth? Oh, what about justice? I don't deal in truth and justice. That's for young lawyers. I've been in this business for 36 years. I deal in evidence. Well, now, that puts me back on safe ground. I have evidence, and plenty of it. I admire his candor. My file includes a copy of a national press release by Benet Brith. It congratulates Stéphane Dion for getting rid of Leslie Hughes, a candidate with a history of anti-Semitism. It makes me cringe. I pull it out and set it on top. It had escaped his notice, but he appears unimpressed. Another caution. How old are you, anyway? Is he saying I'm too old to sue? Parliament is full of people, mostly men, my age and significantly older. Would my august lawyer have asked them their age if they sought his counsel? With a final reproach that he's trying to scare me for my own good, he sends me out of his office to decide for myself. As I leave, I turn to see him looking at me with thoughtful intensity and just a little disapproval. I take myself for an expensive coffee in the spiritual company of my beloved Charles Dickens. I've been checking in with him since my days as a graduate student in English literature. Dead since 1870, Dickens always has something cogent and insightful to say about contemporary problems. Suffer any injustice rather than come here, he'd written about the British courts in Bleak House. But Charles, I argue, that was Victorian England. This is Canada in the 21st century. Surely things have improved since then. Charles is ominously silent. Things look very, very bleak indeed. Indeed.